connected. So, very good day, everybody. Welcome to our podcast. Today I'll be speaking with Craig Ainsworth and our date is the 20th of April 2023. Okay, from a series we've been doing which is looking at executives uh, rather than just uh, everyday people, we've been looking at people using English maybe not as their first um, language, but... Uh, I'm in Spain and, of course, if people come into my sphere of influence and they maybe are passing through, um, then we don't know whether they're going to just be uh, just normal sort of people or maybe a virtuous savage. Uh, You'll get the gist of what I'm getting to in a second as I welcome in Craig Ainsworth. So, Craig, virtuous savage, you're going to explain that one to me. First of all, thank you for very much for having me on. It's great to be here. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for the introduction to Virtuous Savage. Um, my, uh, just to give you a bit of context on it, I'm a former Marine, uh, bodyguard and Interpol associate and being around uh, some very uh, quite impressive and amazing people for at the time, elite, elite uh, lessons were learned. And uh, what we've now done is put that into uh, packages and adventure retreats where we can actually help people with the mental health struggles we have day to day or just for a luxurious trip. Uh, but it, it's great. We're uh, up and running after two years of uh, warming up and uh, we're, we're making waves at the moment. So it's great to be here. OK. Uh, now, obviously, uh, I may as well declare that you're a friend of one of my sons Absolutely. so that uh, obviously, uh, obviously, again, um, you can see where maybe I have a little bit of insight and then uh, it gets interesting and uh, now I'm going to press the connect button which takes me off to the realms of LinkedIn and uh, we get together and uh, we can look at what each other uh, of us have been doing. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it's an interesting world but the, the social media platforms have made life very, very unusual, very, very difficult for me, I don't know always who to trust. Absolutely. So you must feel the same. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's um, it's become they've become cemented as part of our life now, haven't they? How we interact, um, even how our friends keep up with what we're up to. A lot of people don't speak anymore. They just view what each other are doing on social media, and then within that, we have all of the uh, you know lots of positives, but plenty of negatives and openings and opportunity for. What a wonderful cancel culture to come in, um, speech to be to be managed, and all of the stresses that come on. Um, I think the big thing is in, in in this whole situation as well is the biggest, uh, as they always said, the loneliest places within a crowd because you always feel like you're being judged or you're being compared to. Now we have a 24/7 around the clock crowd where we know who likes us because they like us, and we mm. know who views us because they view us. And mm. if they don't, then we have that whole social construct that's. Uh, in the palm of our hand at all times. So it's certainly an a, a interesting situation, interesting time. Uh, you probably realise, you know, my, my background is with the teaching and with the broadcasting and also marketing and selling uh, back in the UK. But 
The difference for me at the moment is when somebody presses something and then becomes a statistic that maybe likes or dislikes. But we'll say f- we go for likes. Um, for me, it doesn't give you the quality of that particular person and that particular like. Mm. You know, I, I, I often will be with people and I'm thinking, uh, you know, um, the words are great, but what you do doesn't follow the same pattern for me. Absolutely. And unfortunately, I, I think a lot of people now, you know, the quoting numbers, the spouting, the statistics, yep. but that doesn't really give you the total picture because, you know, if you've got somebody who's going to be genuine, mm. They've got to be prepared to take the hit if somebody doesn't like what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's how do you judge or how do you put, how do you take data from social interactions as well, really? Like it's great. You can read the data itself, obviously, in likes, in, in views, in analytics. But in the social interaction between people, we're not, we're not building the data where we're, we're what we're, lo- we're losing, which is our community or our connection with each other. Yeah. And I think that's shown in the wealth of uh, problems we have for in mental health these days for um, i know that the biggest uh, killer for males for is suicide in the uk from 25 to 45 and for females it's um it's also um uh, what's it called uh, when how, how ironic i've actually forgot the name of it and it's when they forget their memory what's the oh, okay um amnesia maybe or i, d- I uh, think it's, it's something along those lines oh dementia sorry there we go oh okay so it's okay. dementia sorry okay. oh, pardon me um but I think that shows the physical stress that we're under these days. And we, we don't have that sort of social interaction and not there's not many sort of um, like the, f- the family units and everything these days as well. So people are actually being pushed towards social media for those likes, for that, that social security. So, and I think it's, it, it's, it's snowballing with every year that passes, unfortunately. I, I, what I do find that I, I do a lot more these days is I'll go to somebody's website or... LinkedIn page preferably, Facebook if I have to, um, and I want to know something about that person before we start talking because up till that point in time, then really I don't know that much and I want to be able to ask the right questions, I want to be able to make the right comments and then get the right discourse going. So um, let's go back to basics, we'll go back to your family life. So where did you grow up and who was in the family? Uh, I grew up in Enfield in North London, um, very rough part of town, but at the same time it used to be the old King's hunting grounds, so I actually uh, used to swerve civilization as I tend to do these days as well, and spent a lot of my time uh, in the woods, in a place like Forty Hall. Um, I have uh, two full brothers, um, my mother and father were together until I was around 15, 16, um, and now I have two, I have a half brother and sister, and um, yeah, and most of them are still up in, um, up in Enfield. And I've uh, bounced off around the world and, and, and sent, seemed to just satellite them. <laughs> okay, well, um, obviously, if we are lucky if we can relate to a family when we started off. Uh, you know, I, I had four sisters. Um, sadly, two of them have died. Um, you know, but that is, I think this is the, the maturity that you're have, you have to handle maturity in different ways and I think learning to live with people that depart this life is, is a big part of this you know 
Um, now, another part is, of course, uh, something that you've already alluded to, which is getting your own mind and other people's minds right. Absolutely. And being in a position to help somebody when they may be need your help more than probably they realise, you know. Yeah, I think that's it. I, I, again, I think it, we're sort of losing ourselves in this world now as well. That sense of self where we're driven to be, you know, perfect almost. The, the you know, and you look on people's Instagrams and everyone looks like they're on a a holiday catalogue apparently and, and, and so be it that we're supposed to show our highlight reel to to the world but I do think we're we're losing that sense of self um, and I think in that we're losing that connection with with other as well and um, that's something we've we've really been working with to sort of instill um, firstly accountability for understanding where we we work we work with a, a prim, uh, an ethos called the alpha mindset which uh, is alpha and it's accountability, lessons, not losses, positivity, humility, and action. And it's all from lessons to, um, that I've learned uh, from dealing with high-level stress, whether it be the most famous person on the planet that we've worked with, which most people feel like they live in a wonderland, but there's some of the most hard-working, dedicated people I've ever worked with. Every single day, you have to be perfect. Uh, or it could be a self-made billionaire, or you know, I've had the honor of working with uh, like a, a female medic in her, in her 20s when we were in Helmand, Afghanistan. But every single one of them people always first and foremost took accountability for themselves. Like, what can I change before I start trying to change the world? Um, and that we've now started to apply that and working with, um, you know, some, I, I can't mention the company specific, but some of the biggest, biggest corporate companies in the world were working with some of their leadership to, you know, to teach them to look after them. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's great. Some of them are fantastic leaders in, in, their, in their realm, which I quite frankly don't have a clue on in some areas. But when you actually sit down and you get people to actually spend time and actually make them accountable for what they're drinking, what they're eating, just getting 30 minutes for themselves that day for a bit of wellness, so they're you know a able to actually do their high-end job. Um, it really surprised me, and it's uh, very much become my passion now. As you see that even you know maybe not the younger generation are suffering with the social media, but there's you know e everybody from top to bottom. Uh, this really is um, an area which uh, I will go back probably to about the 80s and say that there was a time certainly around the 80s where um, if you were to say to somebody, I'm suffering from stress, doctors yeah. would laugh at you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They would, you know. They give you a cigarette and a pint of beer, right? You know, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, you've got, um, I mean, things that happened in my lifetime which sometimes, if I was to mention them now, you know, you might sort of think, well, you know, that's a bit weird. But, but it is true. I mean, I, I, I do speak as somebody that always wants to tell the truth. I, I can't stand people lying. I mean, yes. you know, once somebody's told me a lie, I, I will, I won't say I'll go out my way to make anything nasty happen because I'm not like that. But, but I don't want to do things that maybe will involve me with that person again. Yeah, they're unreliable, right? You can't believe a word they say. So. Well, I mean, you know, we've we've had a situation where the Prime Minister of Britain has gone in front of the cameras and has lied. And, you know, unfortunately, when you get it from the top, um, it doesn't really matter what I particularly think as a teacher because now we've really got nowhere to go. If yeah. you can't... 
you know, if you can't trust somebody as the man and the person in front of you yep. to give you an honest answer, then we've got big problems, haven't Absolutely. we? Absolutely, 100%. Okay, let's go back then. You, you've got your family and um, you've gone through your primary school and you've gone to a secondary stage of education. That's right. So we might bring a little bit of the primary stu- stuff back in, in a little bit later in this uh, podcast. But uh, w- which secondary school did you go to? I actually went to uh, Enfield Grammar School. Um, which was, is literally central to Enfield Town. Um, I think it kept its grammar school title from um, several decades before, <laughs> uh, but it was an all-boys school, uh, lots of sport, lots of competition. Um, but, yeah, I never liked school. I spent most of my time trying to uh, run off into the woods and build tree houses, and if I wasn't playing sport, I wasn't really interested in sitting in the classroom. It wasn't until I got older that I actually realised the wealth in education, you know, but... Isn't that life? <laughs> well, it is. And you see, immediately we've got something that, that you and I have both shared that a lot of people don't share. Uh, I went to a grammar school. Uh, it's a different type of education. Yeah. Mine was an all-boys school, like you've just said before. Uh, you know, w- with a, a lot of people having this great tendency now to think that, you know, um, you can do just about anything. Uh, there is certain, or there are certain areas where I would particularly prefer the ladies to not be, you know, down at the loo, for example. Uh, if we're going in there, you know, that's part of our privacy. I think the one thing that we have lost a little bit is privacy. Yes. You know, it, you can't have everything too public. Once you go public with anything, then you've got that part of your life, being, it's been taken from you. Well, I actually had a term, it's very interesting you said I had a term the other day, uh, dignity is dead. Mm. Um, and that really rang, I haven't really thought about it too much until someone said that. And because it's such a catchy, I forget where I heard it. But I, I do feel that it's almost like attention is king these days. And it doesn't matter whatever you get attention for. Yep. Um, on all levels, every demographic, every man, women, every single person uh, that's coming up in the in the younger generations, it just seems that it doesn't really matter about money or anything like that. It's just about as much attention as you can get, which again is, uh, you know, it, it all spawns from the social media aspect, whereas before, how popular could a man be without phones and cameras, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't until you have this handheld device and you can reach, well, nigh on what, three quarters of the world's population now? Yeah. Something insane like that, then, you know, you, you, I, don't, I don't blame them. Like, how can you be brought up in that world and not become a part of that two things have come from what you were just saying to me because i love bouncing ideas off people that come into the studio yeah. number one you mentioned the word dignity uh, my roadie was buried at the age of 50 and i remember clearly the words that the minister said he said he's been spurred the indignity of old age there you go, right? And that is a, an absolute truth because there'll be many people that maybe can see all these different things that come into your life. And, you know, we, we should still be very chuffed that we've got age, but it, it is a different way that people will treat you. It's a different way that people look at you and interact with you, you, you know, and sometimes your past glories don't stand for anything with people yeah. who don't know how to identify with those glories. That That's a very good point mm. indeed. It, there's such a dwarf, I think, actually, in um, particularly in the COVID sector. I feel like it was it was split open. I mean, I'm not going to go into all of the many um, political sections and, and, and things there, but for me, as, a so, as someone who's very Im- involved and very uh, interested in people and how we react, it was interesting to me to see how you know, like the older generation were very much, you know, supportive of, of whatever was going on, but were protecting, 
now that the statues of historical history gone by, like with Winston Churchill, for example, um, whereas the younger generation were like calling him a racist and things like that. And obviously that's where my ears perk up because this man led us against the Nazis, which in my history books are probably the most racist set of people we can, I could imagine over the last mm -hmm. couple of hundred years or maybe more. Um, and that was the first time I really sat back and it actually shocked me when I started seeing that, that real split in, in generation, not just in, in, not in any sort of different peoples or sects or anything like that. It was really a generational thing where mm. we were almost getting rid of the history, not trying to learn from it, not the lessons and not losses, but trying to forget history and trying to move on with what? Yeah, absolutely. That, that's the what's next thing, right? Who well, decides that? Uh, so. You mentioned the, the telephone. I can remember we went to Australia in 2013. I remember getting off the plane, um, okay, the airport seemed to be fairly similar. And then suddenly, I started noticing people were all walking around looking at the telephone. Now, it was the first time I actually had seen this. Yeah. And I remember saying to Anne, oh, I hope that this isn't coming our way. Because basically, <laughs> you know, we're now looking at people who are getting on uh, to a bus or a train or whatever, and they couldn't really be bothered with each other's company. Um, they are in each other's company, but they, they don't know how to sit and talk to each other anymore. Yeah. So we could see that that is definitely a, a little bit of a problem developing, and the year I can pinpoint would be 2013 and the trip to Australia. Okay, so we've got you in the boys' grammar school like myself, so it, it's good because, you know, uh, we can relate to certain parts of our education. Uh, were you interested in, for example, languages? Was that quite a big um, part of your education? Do you know, not really at all, if I'm honest with you. At, at that point, I hadn't really, you know, obviously... I was quite a typical lad where if it was, didn't involve bikes and getting muddy and playing sport, I just wasn't quite interested. I, I sh I'm nearly, I'm 40 years old this year and I struggle to sit still. Mm -hmm. So when I was 14 or even younger, younger than that, say 11, 12, 13, there was just no way I'd be able to sit in a classroom and pay attention. If, if they did let the same lesson, they could condense it down to 10 minutes, you might have held me there. But I, n I was never really interested in languages or... Um, and I just couldn't focus long enough, I don't think. <laughs> okay. I'm just trying to see, really, because of difference in ages, whether there's been a, a change in grammar schools. Because yeah. certainly, uh, for me, I started out, I was in the bottom class yeah. um, for a term, and then they put me up into the middle class. Now, they rated Spanish as the third language. They rated French as the second language. And they rated German as the first language. Which, to me, is bonkers. The only yeah. way you could de probably justify that would be German, royal family, England and Germany. I think that's about the only way. French, our nearest neighbour, yeah. and Spain, 29 countries uh, where you can obviously use the language. Yeah, for sure. Which, right. which makes Most the sense. Most spoken language, absolutely, yeah. 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 So, um, okay, uh, right. I didn't really learn anything practical at the grammar school. Um, I was into all the sports like yourself uh, rugby uh, we didn't we weren't allowed to play football were you allowed to play football yeah we could play football yeah you can play football we could if we were caught with a round ball in the playground we're on detention Unbelievable. I've never heard of that before. No, in England as well. Can you yeah, imagine? Yeah. Uh, you've got to remember also um, our, our school was actually uh, Irish Christian brothers who, who were the teachers. 
so they came over very Irish. Uh, we had half an hour's religious education every day. Now, I would say, um, I would wonder whether you had at least moral education every day. Did you have any of that? We, uh, we had uh, our re religious education class um, at, at least once a week, it was, I'm sure. Okay. Um, and it was very much based. We, we, I've been from North London. Um, I grew up with every culture, race, religion you can imagine. I grew up knowing more about, well, just as much about Japatis as I did Sunday roast, um, mm. which is a blessing later on in life for myself. But it was generally a Christian um, or Church of England um, and a lot of church visits and, and et cetera and, and assemblies. Yeah. Um, and then I think we, we were very open about other faiths and things as well. We had assemblies, but I think it was always a church-based, if I remember him rightly, but it was always Easter and Christmases and things like that, really, yeah. you know. I, if I'm honest with you, I think I always did my best to, uh, to duck those along with the classes as well, but... I think I did you know, as well, Sorry if I'm about honest. that. <laughs> okay, uh, so, right, well, we, we've got to an age where you've got to do probably GCSEs, am I guessing right? That's right, yeah. I did uh, my GCSEs. Um, by then, I'd started to uh, just get in a bit of trouble, really. Um, I didn't really see the benefit in education. I, I quite wanted to uh, start working and doing like landscaping, like my next door neighbor's older brother. Right. <laughs> he worked out in landscaping every day, went off with his friends and worked outside, and that looked great to me. I remember thinking when I was when I was the genius that I was at the age of 15 or 16 <laughs> and knew everything. Mm. Um, but I couldn't wait to get away. Um, I went to, um, after school, I did go to college after my GCSEs. Um, and, and sort of moved into subjects I was more interested in. But until that point, it was just sort of like, it was more like I was doing it because I had to, not yeah. because I wanted to. Well, I, well, I was out of school at 50, uh, 16. Yeah. Um, so really, it, but m my point was really because I wasn't um, up to doing the A-levels. Yeah. Certainly uh, because also at that time, families, you normally, if you didn't have a lot of spare cash, you were uh, invited to go out to work and yeah. or encouraged to say. <laughs> and, um, invited is a wonderful <laughs> word. Yes. And then half of whatever you earned went back in the family. Yeah. So, y you know, that was something that... A lot of people don't really understand and they still don't get their heads round, you know, uh, contributing to your mum and dad and what they've yeah, brought absolutely. into the world, you know. Um, OK, so what were the subjects that you went and chose for yourself in, in the higher sort of areas? I studied uh, media production and communication at college. Um, just before I went to college, I actually tried to join the Royal Marines. But at that time, I was 16. And in hindsight, I... That would have been far too young for me. I okay. Think. I, was, I was still very much a boy, mentally, more than anything. Um, but I went on and I, I studied um, yeah, media production, communication. I very much wanted to be um, either a TV presenter or something along those lines. But it had to be something creative. Now I could get into, pardon me, you could get into the physicality um, of learning, so to speak. And that's where I realized that I learned so much better practically. I right. could go into... Um, a, a studio, they could talk about the camera, they could talk about everything, and I'd be so engaged, I'd remember everything. Right. Um, and that's why I think my love of education now, it was my choice as well. Maybe there was some stubbornness and mm. not being told what to do. But I really got engaged in uh, in the media side of things and realising That just didn't how exist, you see, for us. Yeah. Uh, in fact, you didn't even have a profession as a PE teacher till the 70s. 
So it, it, it didn't exist as any option at all yeah. in, in my formative years. So obviously, uh, if you were thinking Marines, uh, you've got to be th- thinking that you must must have been scrapping somewhere. What was going on? Yeah, there was, um, it was, I had a bit of a, a, a wild uh, few years, to be honest with you. Um, it's not like I got in with the wrong crowd. It was just I was very much didn't fit in with the crowd that I grew up around. So I started to hang out in uh, areas like Chinkford and Walthamstow. Uh, got in with some boys who um, just we bounced off each other, got into a few scraps, a few fights here and there. Uh, nothing ever big, certainly not like these days with all, all the weapons and things that go on. Uh, but a lot of fisticuffs, and when you do it enough, uh, the police get annoyed and they bring you in. But they used to have the... Um, it was it's, Looking back, it was it was great, um, the way that they dealt with it, because they could just give you a criminal record and cause so many problems through m- further down the line. Um, but since there wasn't anything major that had occurred, they gave you, like, black marks, and it used to be, like, one, two, and once you get your third mark, then you're in real trouble. Yeah. Um, and uh, the police took us to the, the, the cells, made us sit in a cell on our own for, like, I think it was, like, it's like four four hours or something like that. And four hours is enough, right? <laughs> like again, again for someone who can't sit still, and you're putting me in a, a cell with nothing to do, nothing to look at, apart from to think I don't want to be in this cell again. Um, so I thought better to go to college and uh, learn something about media instead. Okay, um, right. I'm looking at stepping stones really because I, I think life is like a great big jigsaw puzzle, and you've got to find the pieces and put them in the right places. I know uh, for me. Coming out of school at 16, I had to get a job. But also, we had music. Now, where you had a love of media studies, yeah. uh, for me, I couldn't get to uh, go and listen to the uh, the groups in the cabin in Liverpool quick enough because yeah. that's what I really wanted to you know, develop. And, and I loved watching the groups and the way they worked together. Never thought that I could do it myself, you know. But at that time, uh, I marvel at the way that those groups, you know, got their music together. Yeah. So uh, then to counterbalance sort of that's one side of my free time. The other time, I was mad keen on football. Now, because I was uh, at the age of 11, I was a good player. Then between 11 and 16, I couldn't play because the school wouldn't allow me to. So I actually uh, then with a, a school friend, we started our own football team. So that's how we got around that one. So oh. you'll see that there's little similarities to things that you have been telling me. Um, right, you've, you've got yourself, you sat in the cell, obviously must have been thought, thinking very deep thoughts to yourself. Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, it, it, was, it was interesting as well. And as I said, like, everyone was around us. I had good people around me. I came from a loving home. The home was never the problem. It was like I went out sort of looking for trouble and not even trouble just boys will be boys kind of stuff uh that can escalate as we know and i found out um but i was never um you know i never seriously went looking for it but i had no problem if it came looking for me but when i uh, i started studying and we got to the college side um you start hanging around with different kinds of people right if uh, if i'm then actually interested in what i'm doing i'm staying at college a little bit later so i'm not doing God knows what with all the time in the world. Uh, you know, what's, what's the saying? The devil loves idle fingers. Yeah, the devil yeah. finds work for idle hands. There you go. <laughs> uh, absolutely suits me down to the ground. Yeah, I need to keep busy at all times or I'll find something to keep me busy. So uh, I started to realise the, uh, you know, you can put all of that energy into something positive. I think that was the first time I really realised you could have something for you as well. You get to make those choices. What do I want to learn? What do I want to do? Yeah. Well, we you know you're only a kid anyway. Well, well, you see, I um, I met somebody, and what it was, uh, we had a night school, and in those days it wasn't as structured as it's obviously become, 
but uh, there was a girls' grammar school at the top of the road. Uh, one of my friends said, let's go and have a look at this judo, they're calling it. Yeah. Now, unbeknown to me, it had been banned after the Second World War, you know, uh, same as karate had been banned. Uh, we weren't allowed to learn things like that. I never knew that. That's yeah, so it had only just been freed up. And so uh, we, the first time I came across it, it was my dad actually that took me when I'd be about 14. And I remember this uh, head teacher called Joe Hirschman, a very big six foot two, you know, guy, big guy. And he'd been to Japan, he'd learned uh, about the sport, got to green belt, come back, but he was teaching us with coconut matting. And if you can imagine being thrown from quite a big height, Absolutely, I on, can, it, yeah. it was quite, you know, it was quite aggressive. So uh, <laughs> then, you know, when I went with my other friend, when we were out of school and we went to this um, open sort of thing um, where there was a funny man wearing this little white suit um, with a bald head and he looked a bit like a Japanese guy. He wasn't Japanese, but um, Eric Krebin was my first sensei a teacher. And uh, basically, I learned how to behave. Yeah, absolutely. You had to because if, if you didn't, um, you know, then obviously the, you really uh, you don't get anywhere. I think you've you, once you once you understand there's a principle that if you conform, uh, you don't have to conform with everything. But if you give somebody enough idea that you're going to be a reasonably decent person, yeah. they'll invest a bit of time in you. Absolutely, they? absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I, I think I had this exactly the same thing where I was getting in trouble and I was sort of in and out of boxing gyms, but not to the extent I should have been in, obviously. Yeah. But I think the, what most people don't understand is when you walk into a dojo or an MMA gym, boxing, anything mm. that is a real like fighter's gym, a genuine competitive fighter's gym, it's the most welcoming, friendly, um, and supportive place anywhere. There's no big egos in there because pretty much everyone in there, and if not the sensei, will quite quickly put you back in your place. And that's yeah. a very easy way to get humbled back in yeah in, into the cycle of uh i also respect, like you know? i also like with the the japanese philosophy in life it stayed with me it's still with me now which is basically you know when you make your bow you, you keep your eyes level mm -hmm. but your you, your head will lower a little bit especially in deference to somebody who you know yeah. has got it doesn't have to be physically stronger than you right now yeah. but you know that during their lifetime they've done something yeah. which you could you can respect yeah. and I, I like that and i also i started importing that into some of the businesses that that i got involved with uh, at a management level, I always felt it was better to get under the lowest person and lift them up. Absolutely. You're only as strong as your weakest man or woman mm. or link or exactly. whatever it may be, be, you know? Yeah, because if you're at the top and just trying to keep people suppressed, yeah. you don't get the best out of them, do you? Absolutely not. Okay, so I want to get you now uh, in, in the straightest possible line from this uh, not rebellious young man, but, you know, somebody who, who obviously was able to sort of make their own mind up about things and you've got to find your way. What was your first job in life? I actually started, actually my very first job ever uh, was when I was about 11. I actually lied um, to the uh, local paper round shop and uh, got a paper round and uh, started working then. And then I think from, in, even in summers, from the age of about 15, um, I was always working, doing something or another or trying to make some pennies here and there or even if it's selling Coca-Colas for more than I've hooked them for. Um, not on a big scale, but just little bits. But it wasn't until, um, I think really around the, the, the 15, 16 year old, um, 
uh, 15, 16 years, I started working and doing landscaping and things like that where I'd work all summer. Again, keeping myself busy, be it you have six weeks off or yeah. two months off, there's a whole lot of job you can get into. Whereas I think I was being paid something like £50 a day at one point when I was at 16. And that's like winning the lottery, isn't it? I'd never, like, I, had, mm. I remember when I, I think I did work like a weekend at first and made like £100 and he bought me a beer on, on, the, on the Sunday being 16. You're one yeah. of the lads then, money in your pocket. And I think, again, that is um, you know, the first sense of freedom that you can get. You can make yeah. your own decisions. You have your own money in your pocket. It's like, right, okay, that's where I really started. You start coming into your own, don't you? Well, my first wages were £5.50, I think. From uh, My first job was a stationary clerk at Liverpool University. Uh, part of the job that I enjoyed was carrying the stationery round because you know I didn't have to go to it. Well, those gyms didn't exist, by the way, in those days. There you go. Um, so you know <laughs> I didn't mind that side of the job. Yeah. Plus, I played football for the uh, staff club, uh, which was then uh, g- gave me the uh, ability to be able to. I was I was spotted um, played for the Liverpool Shipping League. And then from there, I got a, a trial with Trammy Rovers uh, and probably wouldn't have had that exposure had I not been already with that sort of money. Now, £5.50 uh, went quickly to £2.50 uh, to my mum and dad. Had it changed very much by the time your first wage packets were coming along? Do you know, it's, it's quite similar. I, w- I had a quite an interesting situation where by the time I was 16, my parents had, had split up. And uh, we were struggling quite badly with, uh, my mum worked, absolute idol of mine back then. And she worked three jobs, she worked seven days a week, like, you know, come back with food for us. Oh no, I had a big lunch earlier, and which we all believed very much, yeah, (laughs) Erin Brockovich kind of style. Um, When I watch that film, I always think of my mum, it's funny, but, so we we had that end. And obviously being a bit of a naughty boy, I was up to a little bit of this and that. Um, And again, earning my own money. So she didn't know exactly where that money was coming from. Uh, but we used to play a nice fun game where I'd hide money in her bags or in her coats oh. or clothes and things like that just mm. to get money in there. Because we, we had you know very little food and things at one point. It was, it was tricky. Um, and, and that's sort of where we went, went for a couple of years. We had a good fun game until one day she was just like, I think she caught me doing it or something. Mm. Um, and I pretended I'd just started. Um, which she, she now knows anyway. So, <laughs> so who, was, who was the disciplinarian in your family for for the fact for me you know i dreaded when my dad was coming back because my dad was a little bit handy with his fists mm. uh, in the early days a yeah. uh, good man uh, he'd only not long been out of the army you know yeah. there's no social workers there's no guidance yeah, different times right yeah and, and i remember once later in life he said to me i don't know why you don't hate me and i said because i understand you yeah and we that's really amazingly tolerant of you that's fantastic well yeah but the thing was you see i do know that a lot of what he would have reacted to was my own fault yeah i'm not yeah. you know you listen to people <laughs> whinging and they nobody takes responsibility oh, yeah. for most of the things that they are worthy of the of the blame oh, i am you know. absolutely my, my biggest villain in life this mm. is why i could never be you know there's people i don't like this there's, there's people i dare say they use stronger words than that but at the end of the day, I fe- affect my life neg- more negatively than anyone else can. Yeah. So if you can control and take accountability of that, at least you're sort of weathering the storm, you know. Yeah. But it's so easy and it's, uh, yeah, it's just easy, isn't it, to blame everyone else. Okay, now we're moving along the road whereby you've started to get a little bit of independence, a little bit of status, you've got a bit of money behind you. Um, can you pinpoint where you think you might have wanted to get to become uh, one of these savages that you've described? 
I think for me, um, again, I grew up in, in, in a rough area, but I had a lot of good male influ influences, but they were very much from, from the criminal fraternity. Um, and it was, I was sort of raised by people from, when I say by people, very much like father figures who were very much from the Cray era. So you dress smart, you carry yourself smartly, you treat women, children, and you're never a bully. But if someone chooses you, then you sort of, you're all about it. And that, I think it began as far back from then. Obviously, I wasn't plotting any of that back then. But I was always drawn to the strong alpha characters. Um, and again, having that strong mother of mine, she was very much the alpha female in my life. So there was always a comparison. Um, and looking for that strength, I've always been attra attracted to them. But not the, again, like we've already spoken of our distaste for people who are, are false or, are, you know, it's quite easy to read through them. And when you have someone who's extremely dominant, aggressive, and quite frankly, who's someone I was a little bit scared of, who was such a gentleman and taught us about values and character and things like that, I think that resonated with me. Plus being from London and hearing all about the Crays and the Richardsons and things and growing up with all those stories, I think it all, I romanticized it. I mean, they're not wonderful people by any way, shape, no. or form. Like we're not preaching that these are good people but the projection and the romanticized theory of the you know the, the, the Italian mobster the the Frank Sinatra's in the suits mm -hmm. and the women and everyone's a gentleman but a savage at the same time right so there was really I think it started to stem from all the way back then now now I'm well okay I can I can see bits of the virtuous side mm -hmm. uh, reminding our listeners that uh, my uh, my relationship to the title of your company, <laughs> Virtuous Savage. Um, you know, people can read into things what they will, but there is a savage side that you, now and again you do have to bring out in life. If you don't, you get eaten. Um, but the virtuous side, I love to, I prefer to be that way. Absolutely. You know, so, okay, where would you say you started becoming more virtuous? Because there, there really must be for most people, a, a turning point. So where would that be? It, it, again, it, it's so clear for me um, where I, I'd be, actually, by the time I was, what, 22, 23, I was, uh, I'd been to university. I'd met a lot of people who had a lot more than me. Came from happy, lovely homes and this and that. And I think around that age, I started to get a little bit bitter. Um, and I still wanted to be in the Royal Marines. I'd been teasing with it. Uh, but I think by then I'd lost a little bit of confidence and sort of look, felt a bit bad for stepping away from the family to leave to go and join. Um, and it wasn't until I joined the Royal Marines um, that I really lost that, where I actually started to build self-value. Uh, I started to actually, you, you basically remove all of your own nonsense, all of the things that you tell yourself, your excuses. There's no more excuses. Mm -hmm. You're not laying in and you're doing it with another body of men. And I think because it was so fast and hard hitting and, ev and before you know it, you're, you know, you're weeks into training, you've forgotten about all the things you worry about, all of the constructs of yourself. Um, and it, once you draw back all of those negatives about yourself and you see yourself for who you really are, which is you know, the term that they use in military training, in uh, elite military training, uh, of breaking you down to build you back up. Well, they don't break you down because a broken person's no good to anyone. What no. they do is simply remove the nonsense, as I say. Mm. Uh, it can feel like they're breaking you sometimes, and maybe in some ways they did. But, you know, um, for me, that's really where I learned a lot about myself, and I had such strong 
male role models who it's actual role marines who take you through training so these guys had been to afghanistan they are absolute nails um and then they're all very polite uh, i think over 75 percent of royal marines have degrees so you know it's not all uh articulate and sat in the library discussing things but there's very much that mixture between the two and everyone there can be a savage if you want it's so very interesting what you're saying because i had a 10-year friendship with paul melba uh, who sadly we died, uh, he died about three years ago, but Paul was a Royal Marine. Yeah. And he's everything that you've been describing. You know, I knew he was a hard man, and there were times when I knew maybe some guy said he would want to hit me or punch me lights out, as he, he used to call it. Um, but, you know, when something needed saying, I think that is also the definition of whether you're a real man or not. Because sometimes, you know, if you're just trying to curry favour with people, yeah. um, you know, the best thing is just keep quiet. Yeah. You if know. you want everyone to like you, sell ice cream, right? Exactly. <laughs> okay, well, I'm looking at your experiences. They came from, uh, very quickly, we looked at uh, Bali, Morocco, Colombia and Peru. That's right. Um, they are, so we, we've actually... Stepped away from Peru now. I was actually uh, caught up in Cusco, uh, in, uh, which is about an hour and a half away from Machu Picchu um, and about four, and about an hour and a half drive, sorry, flight from Lima. Um, but with the riots last year, um, I was actually over there wrecking for uh, the Virtual Savage Experiences and uh, I go f ahead of every, all of our teams and set everything up, construct it with all of our, our guides as my security background medic. I make sure everything's in place. Uh, and got called up there. So we've actually switched over now. So we have uh, Colombia, Morocco, Bali. Uh, we also have uh, all across uh, South Africa, Africa like Kenya. Um, and also we've just been to uh, Geneva as well to speak to a corporate there about doing some really uh, pretty cool trips. Uh, oh, and sorry, Banff in Canada as well is somewhere we've been requested. So I may well be on a flight there soon. Um, the great thing about what we're doing is we now have a really cool format, um, which is, you know, we're taking people out of their daily lives. Um, and like we've spoken privately, when you remove yourself from your comfort zone and, and your support network and uh, you're taken up mountains or we're doing some really fun and um, exhilarating exercises, you, you, you lose in the same manner I just spoke about with the Royal Marines. You manage to shake off all of those inhibitions you have um, and really start to open up and listen a little bit more. It's yeah. nothing like getting someone out of breath for them to actually stop talking. <laughs> well, well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, uh, I can remember uh, back in the 80s when uh, some of this type of stuff was beginning to come in. And, you know, I was reading some, some very interesting people and looking at new ideas. And um, I remember buying the karaoke machine and trying to encourage people to come and sing but not to just get drunk and be allowed yeah but you know get rid of the stress like the japanese intended when it started this particular yeah. uh, idea of karaoke um and when you're now looking at your corporate work um you were telling me you've got two aspects that you particularly want to give them experiences of obviously the physical side and the mental side absolutely which is the more important the, the mental or the physical I think they go hand in hand um, and you know we have some lovely beautiful slogans and things we use but they, you know they sound cliche but it really is if you have your mind body and soul uh, synergized then you can reach you can reach your goal you need to make sure that you're in place but we work with people on their, mi uh, their mind and body um, it's it's all about understanding that we're a complete human right? and we need as we said before we need to take accountability for our needs um, and understand what our wants are 
Um, and we all know the right things that we need to do. We need to drink more water, we need to eat more vegetables, we need to get enough sleep. But then life happens. Yeah. And then we get lost along the way and we build, um, you know, we build habits and we build our own rituals and then we have uh, all of these little things in life that build up. Okay, just while uh, the phone's being answered, I'm just going to quickly say I'm looking down at uh, some of Craig's experience here because um, he was the CEO of Fortified Freedom, which was an international world-class security provider specialising in executive protection, production protection and security training. And uh, basically, um, you know, when somebody looks at your website or your uh, LinkedIn pages, uh, production security specialist uh, with Netflix here, uh, 2019, so we're very current here, head of production, security and close protection, uh, MIB International, Sony Pictures Entertainment with a contract uh, there, uh, also production security and um, a contract with Warner Brothers. That's right, yeah. So, uh, I mean, like in a very different way, but there are similarities. I was trying to build a certain credibility for the radio show I was doing here in Spain. So I would look at certain names like Chubby Checker, Brenda yeah. Lee. They were two that, you know, I wanted to quickly get to, to put me down as somebody that, you know, speaks at good levels. We don't just talk about, you know, um, trite things because this was pre the nonsense that we've all been speaking or seen yeah. speaking on, you know, the platform the social media platforms. So did you make a special sort of effort to go and get credibility very quickly? Um, as far as the film security goes, I actually f kind of fell into it. Um, I was very lucky when I first worked for, uh, I left the Marines and I, I worked for a company called Gavin De Becker and Associates. Uh, my first ever client was uh, Tamara Eccleston and my second client was the Beckham family, um, which put me in good stead. I've, I'd never... You know, I learned all of my lessons and my fundamentals about security. Um, well, I, I studied, I did the Ronin Close Protection course, and then I came back, and then it was straight working with some of the best guys in the business. So I, I instantly went from the Marines with that ethos. I had literally a month off uh, looking for work, and I was straight into it. So I was very lucky, and I built off that momentum uh, when I started my own company after that. Um, and then I, I actually kind of fell into doing the surveillance where we worked, uh, I worked uh, in association with Interpol uh, and surveilled some uh, paymaster generals and some real uh, naughty people all over the world. Um, and then from that, I actually had a reputation of being quite an honest individual and someone uh, which is quite rare to not take backhanders in our sort of business. Uh, we, uh, my company had rules where we weren't even allowed to take tips off people. We could receive gifts if it was a wash or something like that, but cash mm -hmm. and all this different stuff we just banned. It was a lesson we'd taken from Gavin De Becker. It just removes that. Remember when I gave you that money, it, it keeps everyone clean and fresh within the security world. There's no, you know, we're very friendly, but we're not friends. And because of that, I was actually um, hired to run, uh, to be head of security for the, for the Fantastic Beast film. And uh, there was a hell of a lot of corruption that had overflowed from the Harry Potter days. And uh, then we went from there for Justice League, the second Harry, uh, the second Fantastic Beast, uh, and then we ran Men in Black uh, for Sony, uh, and eventually I was picked up by Netflix to uh, as their, to consult for the head of uh, production security for Amir, um, as well as all of the close protection and all of those things that were going on. And I was working literally 100 and 130 hours a week, pretty much seven days a week for a good five six years. 
Um, and then uh, COVID came along whilst I was working for Netflix, as you say, it's very current. And, um, you know, when I was sent home to sit in my room and think about what I'd done and what I'd been doing in my life, as the rest of us were, mm. I realised that everything had been great and I'd had a great time. But um, during COVID, I actually ended up losing 11 friends uh, in 16 months to suicide. And um, it was almost, you know, there was three in a week one week. And I just sort of crumpled and I felt that I'd, you know, I'd spent all my time protecting everyone else in the world and I'd been paid to do this. And obviously that's grief speaking and there's, there's yeah. in every case, there, you know, I might have been able to do more, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, I couldn't quite take the guilt for it. But at that mm. time, the grief hit me so hard and then I lost a dear friend of mine. Um, and so that's where Virtuous Savage was really put into overdrive. Mm. I started working for some underprivileged youths um, and I just wanted to give back because I was hurting so much and I had nothing to do climbing the walls. Yeah. I, I really reached out to help people and work for some charities and I actually realized, which was strange to me, where I'd been so used to hiding my clients and myself from the world. I had no real social media and stuff then, which is only a couple of years ago. And um, I actually realized that people were listening to what I had to say because of my background or because of my experiences or because I just gave them time and presence. Um, and it just became my new addiction. So I started turning my security clients into into clients for Virtuous Savage, and, and we've really gone into the coaching now. To, and it's just a yeah, it's a whole other world. Uh, there's a lot of in um, you know crossover stuff uh, as we're talking. All sorts of things are coming through my mind. Uh, I, I went into teaching when I was, in fact, really just a little bit older than you were now. Um, although I was a judo coach at twenty. Now, some people, they don't see that you can be a good teacher at 20. Um, you know, they, they separate the academic bits and that has to go with no, some people, whereas not, it no. doesn't need to be that, does it? You know? No, uh, definitely not. Um, and then, of course, the other thing is, of course, the, the way that money's changed because, you know, certainly when I was growing up, you didn't earn this sort of big money. It took you most of your life to get a decent wage. Yeah. Whereas now, I think people are beginning to see that there are certain priorities that should command more money. I mean, one of the biggest yeah. things in life, for me, that bugs me more than anything is the likes of the MPs already on, was it 70 grand or something like that? Yeah. Uh, they're very quick to give themselves a 5% rise, yeah. and yet they'll tell anybody that, you know, they can't have 2%. Nurses, you know. doctors, things. It's, it's just, yeah, it's, it doesn't make sense, does it? No. And as you say that, I think there's... there's a movement now by the people to invest in themselves as they sort of everyone's kind of realizing that we can't leave it up to the government and we can't uh, leave it up to organizations and I think there's a lot of personal responsibility coming in for um, taking a grip of our you know mental health is 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 the term they're using obviously that is uh, you know we could be expansive on that and speak for several more hours but um, I, I feel that's where we're starting maybe even moving back together slightly in a, in a communal way, even in small pockets where we're realizing that, you know, no one's coming to save us and we need to sort of take it in our own hands and take responsibility. I, I think even more so, I think that, that for me, there's definitely a, a small group of people who seemingly want to take over. Oh, 100%, yeah. And so the antidote must be go back to your family roots, go back to your small groups, look after each other. You know, uh, th that's the way forward, I think. Um, having said that, you know, who am I to to, to be wrong or right? It's, it's everybody has to think for themselves. Absolutely, yeah. I, d I do think that um, you have got something that uh, is a mixture of a Robin Hood 
which I think you actually gave me. Yes, that's right. That yeah. name. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about you, 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 the way you see yourself as a latter-day modern Rob, Rob, Robin Hood. Um, <laughs> yeah, the um, I, I sort of set up Virtuous Savage in, um, and I use the term Robin Hood semi-jokingly, but my dream is to basically is to um, provide my services, which you know are. are, are are quite unique and we're doing very well with high-end individuals therefore we can charge a price that matches and what we do on uh, off the back of that is actually provide uh, free coaching uh, through charities uh, we, we uh, donate 25% of all of our uh, merchandise sales to Great Ormond Street Hospital uh, to the Barley Children's Foundation and the Tinge I'm gonna get this wrong but it's the Tinge Regine Association in the uh, southwest of Morocco uh, shout out to them <laughs> and um, and we also uh, donate 10% of profits, um, and we put together a lot of, uh, where we're starting to look at different events and children's days and things we can open up. And my dream is to basically build it into uh, providing these luxury retreats and yacht retreats, um, and then off the back of that, turn it slowly into a foundation. So after I'm gone, uh, essentially the business would run itself, and the foundation would continue to support the charities and people's mental health long after I'm gone. So that's now my, my life goal. Is to that's great. It's great to have a, a mission and a legacy. Absolutely, right. Who would you say was the, the name, the famous name, that has impressed you the most for whatever region you, you can tell us? Oh, um, this sounds... I, 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 I don't like it when people don't answer the question directly at first, so I apologise, but I've, been, I've met so many wonderfully incredibly people, incredible people, I could speak about many. One person for me who, when I met in real life, who was an idol long before I met him, was Arnold Schwarzenegger. And when the guy enters the room, the guy enters the room, right? He's Arnold Schwarzenegger. And when you see him, he's Arnold Schwarzenegger to the core. Um, the way he acted, the way he carried himself, um, and how magnanimous he was when we had, I think at one point, about five security around him in Leicester Square where he wanted to meet the fans and you know, actually took time and listened and spoke to people. And um, it was a very short couple of days, uh, very hard hitting, he's obviously a very busy man. But just to be in someone's aura, where they are very much everything I ever wanted them to be, <laughs> I can guarantee you that's not the case with most of your favorite, so not particularly your favorite celebrity, mm -hmm. but most of the celebrities and people you know who are in, in, in the real world, there's a whole team marking them up and creating that person. Arnold very much made himself, uh, and that is someone who's always stuck with me. And, and this is the same guy who I saw a picture last week, I think it was, and he was mending potholes in the roads in California somewhere. Yeah. So that that seems to uh, go in the right way there, doesn't it? He does. I mean, mm. yeah, he's no angel, that's for sure. <laughs> but uh, but again, he's. Um, I think he's doing a lot of charity work these days. I know he's uh, into conservation and all all of those good things as well. So. Uh, I think he's run out of things to dominate, so now he's going to help save the world, right? <laughs> and what about, you know, there is a bit of a um, an, an urban myth th these days. I mean, virtually every time I switch on uh, the computer, I'm getting all these videos coming through of mixed martial artists and people knocking uh, the stuffing out of somebody else. And yeah. uh, especially the one disturbing thing, um, I've deliberately kept away from too much of the political uh, type of things. But where you've got uh, a man who's now decided he was going to be a woman and fighting a woman and, you know, cracking her head open. Yeah. You see, we're, we're going to a very, very dangerous bit of nonsense there for me. 
Yeah, f- for me, it's I've kind of been a, a fly on the wall where with all of it. Um, again, I, I grew up in Enfield, and I, I one of my best friends from the age of thirteen. Like, you know, I've always been around like homosexual people, and I've been open to every different culture, race, religion, and creed. Uh, the only thing that I would say about it is the intolerance that this seems to be bringing, but for everybody. Mm-hmm. And it seems like where it's it's being, and I'm not saying anything, it's the notion itself, the way it's been presented by the media and the things that's been pushed out, it's very wither against us. There's no sort of, wait a second here, there's people in an older generation that don't quite understand this. There's no sort of grace period. It's either you're with us or against us. And it has a bit of remnants for the far right to me, um, that extreme aspect. Or and maybe far left. Or exactly that. It's Because I think they both join up around the back, by the This way. is exactly with, with, with how I feel with everything. I'm very supportive of everyone and everything and your belief systems, no problem at all. Until mm. you start to push them against somebody else. Yeah. And that goes for absolutely everything I am in life. I believe in freedom, freedom of speech. And I think you can do whatever you want in life as long as you're not hurting anyone else. Now, would you put these type of things in a book? I have, thank you very much. I, uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate the uh, setup there. I absolutely uh, have indeed, and we've gone into great detail. Um, I have a book coming out later on this year, um, possibly sooner than that, uh, called The Discombobulated Alpha. Very much uh, a match on my life, and uh, I tell a lot of cool stories about everything from uh, the Royal Marines in Afghanistan to growing up and getting in a whole lot of trouble um, to really growing up and pushing through the Marines and being around such wonderful people, everyone from you know the Beckhams to the Ecclestons, uh, Schwarzenegger, Jennifer Lawrence, uh, Ben Affleck, Chris Hemsworth, Tom Holland, you know, lots of wonderful people, billionaires, uh, and then the Interpol stuff as well. But it all comes back around to the Virtuous Savage. Um, and yeah, uh, you should pick it up for sure. And what about Netflix? Is it likely to go in that direction as well? Well, I've, we've actually, um, I've actually pitched it as a TV show as well. Um, we're speaking to, uh, I can't actually say, we've got, I've got a, a, an agreement, shall we say. Um, not quite with Netflix, but someone that can lead us there. So hopefully we'll have the book and TV show in the next couple of years. Brilliant. Okay, well, I went into teaching when I was a lot older. Um, I didn't feel that uh, my best years, uh, in fact, I don't even think they've been reached yet. So uh, you must have some idea of something that at the moment you'd like to happen. What would you like to happen? My primary focus right now is, um, is to help other people. The book for me is great. The possibility of the TV show is great. Um, and they're very much on my bucket list. But for me, I'm in a position right now where people are actually starting to listen to me and where I'm actually helping people. Helping people see that they're their own superhero, they're also their own villain. And by taking accountability for just their actions and the way that your mind, your thoughts and feelings, that we can actually help them and live a little bit of a better life. And that's very much where I'm at the moment. Okay, and this trip round, well, Spain at the moment, uh, where else have you been and where are you going? Oh, so we went to, uh, we left the UK, we went through France, we we met some prospect clients in Belgium, then we um, had a very small experience down on, uh, in Lake Geneva in Switzerland, Uh, then we went to Barcelona, Uh, we're currently in Denia, Uh, we are teaming up with uh, a whole yacht of fun to bring some absolutely awesome luxury uh, experiences. We're next going to uh, Seville, and then we push through to Portugal. And then we have some uh, experiences going on in Portugal. 
and uh, from there on it's um, I think we're going to be moving over to Bali around July but very much bouncing around the world trying to bring some uh, some positivity and some focus on people's mind body and goals Okay, so my special guest has been Craig Ainsworth, and I'm going to ask Craig to give me the title of the book one more time. The Discombobulated Alpha. And the company that most people will still be able to find you involved with is Virtuous Savage. Okay, please go and look at the websites and the pages and everything else, uh, and buy the book when it comes up. Enjoy the rest of your trip. Thank you very much. Thank you, Craig. Thank you. Thank you.